0: Welcome to the Guardian Mindset Podcast, presented by attorney Eric Daigle. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Guardian Mindset Podcast. Now, listen, I know it's been a while since we did an episode. We've been very busy, as everybody knows, that follows us with our finishing out the 2023 year and both our internal affairs training and, more importantly, our Use of Force Summit, which we just completed, which was a phenomenal event. If you have not made it, you need to come to this event. 150 people talking about use of force for a significant number of time for three days. And it's just such an awesome group of people and getting them together for the same purpose and discussing the issues of use of force, which brings us to today's topic. Because today I want to start back out into the podcast world with, you know, hitting you hard with some with some really deep thought processes of use of force and where do we go from here. In the reality, if you paid attention to a lot of the podcasts, I brought you up to speed with the, the history of use of force and law enforcement. We've talked about qualified immunity. We've talked about Lombardo versus St. Louis. And if you need a refresh on those, you can jump back into those. But today's topic, today's topic is duty of care. And really what we're going to talk about is unraveling the duty of care in law enforcement amidst moral and legal dilemmas. And now I got to tell you, we put an article out on this, uh, both on our Learning Center and in social media uh, a week before the summit. So that was the last week in November. And uh, it's a great overview article. I'd really encourage you to take a look at it. But I'm going to jump right in on some of the issues that we talked about in that article because of the... The challenges that that we face in this area. And I promise you one thing, that we're going to have to come back on this topic because I'm, I'm trying to look ahead. I'm trying to see what the future holds. And, and it really, let's just take a second. In the use of force arena, 2017, 2018, 2019, we had three Supreme Court cases that ensured that officers were provided qualified immunity if the officer did not violate clearly established law. And basically what the Supreme Court said in three very important cases was that if the officer did not violate clearly established law in the use of force that they would get qualified immunity. And so as you know from our prior podcast, clearly established law means that there is a rule that says you have to follow it. You have to, you can't do a certain thing. And the example would be um, using force of a significant nature against a passive resistor, it would specifically get into rules and application of threat and threat assessment and active resistance. And and we're really going to talk about one additional part today, and that is governmental interest. Right. Well, basically, what you know uh, here is that w- when we talked about Lombardo versus St. Louis, we talked about. The need. And one of the things the Supreme Court said is the most important analysis is going to be analyzing the need for the use of force in direct relationship to the amount of force used. Right. So think about that for a second. The need for the use of force in direct relationship to the amount of force used. Now, some people have seen that uh, states across the country have used the word proportional. I'm not a big fan of that word. I have a dictionary and the dictionary definition is not a good one what I want you to focus on is the word need or the word necessary. Because the question, as we know under the Fourth Amendment, is what is the governmental interest that we're trying to affect by the Fourth Amendment seizure with the use of force? All right, so let's dive into this. And before I do so, I got to give a little shout out to Kara, who's running the board and manages these podcasts, doing a great job. And also remind you that, Our podcasts are supported by the DLG Learning Center and a lot of people really haven't dove into the Learning Center. Did you know that you can get weekly Path of the Guardian videos and training, uh, legal update training through the app and through the DLG Learning Center? You also can get supervisors continued education on a monthly basis through the app and through the Learning Center. So I would encourage you to check it out. Make sure that you are signed up for our newsletters that come out every Tuesday morning, and you can do so by putting your email address into the front page of the website, Dagelawgroup.com. You don't want to miss those important legal updates when they come out. So let's dive into this. Duty of care. Well, what the hell does that mean, right? Uh, as we stand at the juncture of change and responsibility, we in law enforcement must address the pressing high controversial question. And here it is. Do officers have a duty of care to intervene in crisis? And what constitutes this duty in the contemporary landscape of law enforcement? Now, the challenge for me is very is very direct. Um, if, you're, if I could show you the, the piles of paperwork that Adriana has put in front of me with the hours of research that she's done on this issue, and somehow I'm going to break this down to be interesting to you. This is a very specific legal issue. And so what I want you to focus on is what is the duty of care and how do we understand it? Well, here's the best way to do this. What legal duty and liability during during police intervention in non-criminal mental health incidents, in particular with persons threatening suicide, do law enforcement officers have? Well, what really started me as the keynote for the 2023 use of force summit was that a few years ago, you all know that in Parkland, Florida, a deputy after a a terrible incident involving an active shooter where children were killed in the school, the deputy working as the SRO in the school was arrested and charged with seven counts of child abuse because he did not run into the school. Now, I expect all of you that are listening to this have an immediate reaction to it, right? I mean, you all know me. I mixed multiple worlds. I started as a, you know, I started as a ground pounder and, and worked my way up to this fancy life of an attorney. But, you know, when you hear that, every one of us is going to have a reaction, meaning I know what I'm going to do in that situation. I know how I'm going to do it in my, that situation. And I think the key part to this for all of you listening is that this mental mindset is a very important part of our job, right? Meaning, you you know, are you ready mentally for dealing with that situation? And what will you do in that situation? But there's another part of this. And that's the part that I want to start talking about today. And that is, did he have to? Think about that question for a second, right? Just think about that. Yes, he... He was the SRO in a school, active shooter, children being killed. We all, our gut tells us it's our job, Eric. You got to get in there. You got to, your job is to sacrifice your life for the better, especially for children. That's what we get paid to do. That's what we have accepted. You made a choice. The choices you could have been a, you could have done many things in life, but you chose this job to be a guardian of your community. And so, in the internal aspect, most of you are probably saying, "Listen, got to go. Got to go, got to go, got to go. Got to do it." But the question that I had once he was criminally arrested, which I didn't say out loud at that time, was that's a great analysis. Because did he have to? Did he have to go into the school? And and I kind of sat on that for a while. And then over the summer, 2023, end of the summer, he was tried and acquitted of all charges. And it brought this back to the forefront because it's a really, really hard discussion. And that is, did he have a legal duty to enter that school? Did he have a legal duty as a police officer to enter that school to terminate that deadly assault of those children? So the question on the table that we must start asking in 2023 is what is the legal duty of an officer to intervene? Now, please, I want to make sure that I'm being very clear here. I'm not recommending that we are going to walk away from our job in any way whatsoever. And I am not going to make an excuse for officers to say, well, Daigle says we don't have to deal with this. Not saying that at all. Be clear. Not saying that. But I am saying that we are starting to see situations where we have done all that we can do and there is nothing else that we can do, especially in the area of mental health and of mental health response and of people in crisis, there has to be a point where we in law enforcement and even in society say, hey, what do you expect the officers to do in this situation? I ask questions often to people and say, What do you expect a 22-year-old police officer to do with someone who should be in a mental health facility receiving significant treatment, but is not because that treatment is not available or that mental health facility is not available and that person is out on the street having a crisis? What do you expect officers to do? So what we know is... We're not recommending in this podcast because I don't want you going back to your boss and saying, well, Daigle says I, cannot, I can just walk away. Did not say that, right? Karen Clare did not say that. But there is an option out there. As the Fourth Circuit has said, it may be the best legal advice, but it won't be operational sufficient. Yes, the court system has said that maybe we should start walking away. And we'll talk about those cases. But on the operational side, I'm not going to let you Let you just sidestep your duties as a police officer. We're gonna talk about what we call the public duty, and that is a general duty to serve all citizens, not a particular duty to serve any one citizen. We know that public duty arises when we create a special relationship, which we're gonna talk about, specifically a promise or representation. And what we wanna really get into is something that we focus on, and that is a confusion of a legal duty of care with a moral duty of care. Yes, a legal duty of care with a moral duty of care. What does that mean? Well, a legal duty versus a moral duty. We in law enforcement have a sworn oath to serve and protect the community, but it does not automatically translate into a legal obligation to shield individuals from their actions or the actions of others. A moral duty to serve and protect does not equate to a legal duty to protect individuals from themselves or each other. So, listen to what I'm saying. A moral duty to serve and protect does not equate to a legal duty to protect individuals from each other, uh, from in uh, from themselves or each other. So, things I want to talk about. What does this mean in the? aftermath of 2020 police reform legislation. And I want to not only understand duty of care, but moral duty versus legal duty, suspect versus subject, public duty, doctrine, duty to act, state created danger. And I'll be honest with you, one of the new things, um, one of the new things we we can deal with is something that we've been looking at now, which is A disengagement policy. Yes, we are about ready to begin talking about disengaging in certain situations. So as we focus on these issues, let's dive into what they look like. So we do know something about improving police response to mental illness. In my opinion, and solely my humble opinion, You know, we had a lot of discussion about this in 2017, 2018, uh, 2019, but then with all the police reform that went to the side. And so as a result of that, the mental health issue kind of went away, but did it really go away. And I think that it didn't go away. I think we're being set up for failure in law enforcement. And that's what I want to convey in this discussion. If if you're talking about a gentle way for all of us to improve our response to mental illness, I'm talking about working with the media to spread awareness, provide training to improve officer response, collaborate and create beneficial partnerships, share information and resources with the community in the attempts to strengthen community response to mental health and mental illness. And and I got to be honest with you, and just to put it on the record, I, I, I hate to use the term Mental illness, because I I I don't know what that means. I'm I'm uh, I'm an attorney. I don't I'm I'm not a I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. Uh, I I like to look at it in a very simple way, and that is someone in crisis. But the way that that reflects to us in the law enforcement setting is that we're dealing with somebody who has capacity issues, right? I think that's better in my world instead of saying mental health or mental illness. I want to deal with capacity issues. And what that means is that I'm giving somebody an instruction pursuant to Graham versus Connor, and the individual is incapable, based on incapacitation, of understanding what I'm saying. And that could be based on mental health issues, medical issues, crisis issues. God knows what it could be from, right? So let's let's be clear. I, I, I am in no way qualified to sit here and tell you what mental health illness looks like but i am here to say that when it comes to the legal analysis of use of force my concerns in using force in situations where somebody is suffering from crisis is that the graham versus connor and it's very simplistic application allows us to assist individuals who are making bad decisions to make better decisions. Think about that for a second, though, because what does it require? It requires the individual to have the capacity to make the decision. right? And so if they're suffering from crisis in some form, then they are not making a decision, which means they might not be a suspect. They might be a subject. Let's let's dive into this a little bit. The question that I'm going to briefly touch on here and can probably do a whole podcast just about this is what's the effect of 2021 police reform legislation? Well, I guess I've been confused ever since 30 states in the country got legislation under 2021's police reform because use of force in its analysis is almost 100% of the time an analysis done with federal law. When you sue law enforcement for excessive force, you are suing law enforcement under 42 U.S.C. Section 1983 in federal court for a constitutional deprivation. So the question is, what are all? What is the effect of all this state law legislation that gave additional standards under the state law? Meaning that we had state laws that have. Expanded the scope of Graham versus Connor to add things like de escalation requirements or proportional requirements or to add a Graham plus standard, meaning that they added things that needed to be done before the use of force could occur. What effect does that have on litigation? And for me, I, I just thought I was slow because I don't understand. I'm like, state law has nothing to do with federal law, nothing. So what's the issue? And then I started to think about it from the concept of duty of care. Listen, if law enforcement was sued in state court, they can't be sued for a constitutional deprivation because that's a federal application. They would have to be sued for what's known as negligence or what we know in state law as tort law. And what I'm concerned about is that we have to start paying more attention to this duty of care issue that is made by the new uh, state law legislations that came out in 2021, the additional standards that were added by the 2021 legislation. Now, just to give you just a brief overview, you have to understand something that in state court, when you're sued, majority of the time, uh, you can be sued for false arrest and false imprisonment and intentional infliction of emotional distress, all of those, assault and battery, those are all state law claims. But the easiest one to be sued under is called negligence, and that's a general tort liability claim. That's, that handles everything from car accidents to slip and falls, And but it, how does it apply here? A negligence cause of action has four elements, right? Number one, duty of care. Number two, breach of the duty of care. Number three, proximate cause. Number four, resulting harm. In order to successfully bring a negligence claim, the cl- the elements must be used. One, had to have a duty of care. It makes a little sense now, doesn't it? Must have a duty of care. You must breach the duty of care, proximate cause, and resulting harm. So the individual was injured and it was your fault. But what we're going to focus on is how this duty of care comes back uh, 100%. We know that there's increased a level of public awareness and public scrutiny with mental health response by law enforcement. And what I'm gonna get into in a decision called the Christopher Hill decision is that even the court recognizes that we're set up for failure. Law enforcement is set up for failure when dealing with individuals in crisis. Majority of the high profile use of force incidents In this country, involve individuals affected by some form of incapacitation or mental illness. Persons affected by mental illness and their families expect that law enforcement officers will afford them respect and compassion. And the thing that we as law enforcement have the most significant uphill battle with is that there is a societal expectation that vulnerable people will be treated accordingly. But the challenge that nobody wants to talk about is, is there a point where we can do nothing more for these people? But we have to recognize, and this is significant, and all of you know that I've had a badge for 30 years, and I think where it's different is that Superman complex, meaning that you really believe that you can fix any problem. And I, I really did believe in my early days of law enforcement that was, there was nothing that law enforcement couldn't do to assist people and and help them. And here I am in my older age, looking back at these cases and saying, huh, maybe we can't fix everything. Maybe that the mental health crisis is so significant that there's a point where we in law enforcement need to say, I can't provide this this person any more uh, assistance as a police officer and we consider disengaging. Now, I'm a big fan and completely in support of placing individuals in the ranks with law enforcement that can assist people better than we can. Uh, Psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, people that have the skill set to deal with things that law enforcement doesn't have. And society, at the same time, has to recognize that a normal officer gets eight hours worth of mental health training. Come on, people. That's not enough. That's not going to get it done. I mean, a person that's a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a social worker, how many hours of training do they get? Uh, Years? Four, six, eight years? Uh, You're expecting things from police officers that they are not qualified to do. Let's remember one thing. Let's go back to the basics. Use of force has a Fourth Amendment objectively reasonable standard. And as you've heard me say multiple times and will continue to hear me say multiple times, to evaluate this standard, we must put it on the scales of justice. We must must put on one side of the scales the governmental interest and on the other side of the scales, privacy rights. And we must balance the governmental interest and the privacy rights. Or to make it even simpler for you, We must balance why we did it versus how we did it, right? And we must balance that aspect. And this really comes into play when we break this down. So let's start breaking it down in its concepts. Let's talk about words. You know how much I love words, right? Moral duty versus legal duty. Law enforcement officers have a sworn oath to serve and protect the community. It does not automatically translate into a legal obligation to to shield individuals from their actions or the actions of others. The duty of care brings to the fore the multifaceted challenges officers encounter daily, requiring officers to navigate the thin line between moral obligation and legal duty. This balancing act demands both knowledge and training, transitioning from historical approaches which often incline towards direct intervention and the possible culmination in deadly force, to modern strategies that prioritize de-escalation and scrutinize the role of armed officers during crisis. Well, let's go one step further. Let's talk about suspect versus subject. And I really love this as a skill set for you to build your guardian mindset. Let's put it right into perspective. What if I said something as simple as this to you? Every time you meet somebody on the street, put them in a bucket. Yes, a bucket, like a bucket. Now picture me holding two buckets, right? Well, let's go with the orange Home Depot buckets. Everybody with me? All right. We got two buckets. Kara's not even laughing. I can't even make her smile today. It's Friday. You think, right? We got two buckets. One bucket is a suspect bucket. The other bucket is a subject bucket. Eric, have you lost your mind? Not yet. Close, but listen, why do I want you to put them in a bucket? Because I want you to classify people upon meeting them so that you can come up with the process in which you are obligated to respond to them, right? What do we know? If we have a suspect, somebody identified as having committed a crime, that they are governed under the Fourth Amendment seizure of Graham versus Connor and possibly Tennessee versus Garner, right? That, that, that tells us that somebody committing a crime would, needs to be taken into custody, that we're going to, the governmental interest is that need to take them into custody, in the severity of the crime, the threat to the officer and others actively resisting or attempting to evade arrest by flight is the basis of that suspect. That's why we're going to use force. But now go to the other bucket. That's my subject bucket. The subject bucket is somebody suffering from mental health crisis, mental medical issues, incapacitation issues, anything that doesn't fit in a suspect bucket. The subject bucket, in its application, I have a different question: What guides our use of force on the subject bucket? What guides needing to use force? Now, people would say right away, "Well, Eric, whoa, it's a subject you can't use force." No, that's not true. You can use force legally can use force to get this person help and assistance. Well, we have to really break down the application of this bucket. Now, because the life, because the world isn't perfect, we actually have to have three buckets, but I don't have three hands, so I can only carry two buckets. So we have the third bucket. So we have a suspect bucket. We have a suspect slash subject bucket. And then we have a subject bucket. We know when we have a suspect bucket that Graham versus Connor applies. We know that when we have a suspect slash subject bucket, Graham versus Connor applies. But what about the subject bucket? This is what we're talking about: mental health issues. We must understand the fine line between governmental intrusion and an individuals' Fourth Amendment rights to privacy and freedom. In fact, there's a case from 2010, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals case Escobedo versus Bender, where officers responded using force on a non-suicidal subject. Threatening harm only to himself, resulting in the death of the individual subject. The court came back and said that law enforcement is on notice that this type of response to a non criminal subject posing harm only to themselves will result in liability for officers involved. Now, let me take you one step further in this. I am the legal chair for the National Tactical Office Association. I am the guy that caused this country to stop and say, Why are we sending our tactical teams to individuals holding themselves hostage when there is no other threat available to them? Where we know that this is not a tactical call-out. This is a person in crisis holding themselves hostage. If there's a very limited or no threat to a third person or outside, this is not a SWAT team call-out. Why not? Well... What people don't understand is that the SWAT team, the activation of the SWAT team is a Fourth Amendment application. You, by just calling the tactical team, you are activating the Fourth Amendment. It is a use of force analysis, and it has to be an objectively reasonable basis for that. And when somebody is holding themselves hostage, we have a bigger challenge. Today's key, the key aspect, I think we're going to have to do a couple of podcasts on this topic. But the key aspect for you is Eric, give me some guidance on this subject bucket. What do we do with the subject bucket? Well, here we go. In this 2017, there's a Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals decision called Corey Hill versus Christopher Miracle. It is the first guidance that we have from the court system on handling individuals that we have classified as subjects. All right, so here's the story. There's a 911 call from a plaintiff's girlfriend, Corey Hill, claiming that Mr. Hill may be having a diabetic emergency. This is not a criminal call. This is a medical call. It comes in as a medical call. There's no, Mr. Hill has, it is a clear subject, has not committed any crimes. Officers respond in support of EMS to Mr. Hill's house. And any good law enforcement officers back in my days and we weren't medically trained, so our philosophy of ABCs and medical was ambulance before cruiser, right? You know, those individuals that are highly qualified to do that job. But here, ambulance gets on scene before cruiser, and four EMS personnel individuals begin treating Mr. Hill. After a short time, Mr. Hill becomes combative. Okay, so he is suffering, Mr. Hill is suffering from a diabetic emergency is sugar levels are crashing. And if any of you have ever experienced this, you know that the individual, when their sugar level drops in a diabetic reaction, their attitude and demeanor changes dramatically with that. Right. And so when the cops and the EMTs get there, he's a nice guy, but as his sugar level drops, he becomes other than a nice guy. Uh, and he begins to fight and becomes combative and disoriented. Um, the paramedic is able to prick Mr. Hill's finger and is able to confirm that Mr. Hill's blood sugar is extremely low. And says to the officers on scene, "Listen, uh, we need some help, guys." They say, "Sure. What do you need?" I say, said, "Listen, uh, we got to get an IV into this guy. He's crashing, and if we don't get an IV into him soon, he's going to die. We got to get an IV into him. What do we want to do? Let's put him on the table. Let's get him down. We'll strap him down here, and we'll put an IV into him. Sure." Officers being good officers, we're here to help. Let's help, and so they do so. And but Mr. Hill's combative, so during the process of trying to get him to the ground, get him on the table, and secure him with enough security so that they can put a an IV into him, one officer takes his taser, drops the cartridge, and gives him a pink one-second shock on his thigh to get his attention, which by the way does get his attention. And they're able to secure him on the table, which then allows the medical people to put an IV into Mr. Hill. And then within 15 minutes, Mr. Hill is back to his good old self. Happy-go-lucky, we're good. Now, why are we talking about this case? Well, unfortunately, no good deed goes unpunished. And Mr. Hill turned around and sued the police officers and sued the police officers for excessive force for the use of the taser, in applying that taser one, one second, not even a second, you know, drive stunt application and his allegations was that was excessive. So this case makes it to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. And I really want you to just start understanding this duty of care issue specifically by this. The court looked at this case and was asked a very simple question. Hey, how do we evaluate whether the officer's use of force in this application is excessive? Now, be clear. The court didn't say at all use of force in a medical application is excessive. The court said we don't have a test to evaluate it. We don't we can't use Graham versus Connor. We can't Graham versus Connor, what's the first question? Severity of the crime. Well, there's no crime here. Threat to the officer or others. Oh, not, he's not harming anybody else. he's, he's harm is to himself. Active resistance. Well, is he resisting intentionally? And so the best line that came out of this case by the Sixth Circuit was this. The, the court determined that applying the Graham standard in this situation was equivalent to a baseball player entering the batter's box with two strikes already against him. Think about that for a second. Here's the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals saying, and I'm not a a big baseball fan, I'm a football fan, but a big baseball fan, but I do know enough from my little league days that if you entered the batter's box with two strikes already against you, your options are not good. You're going to strike out with one pitch or you may get a, you may get a hit, but I like the three-strike rule better. I think you get a little more options, right? But the court here is saying it was equivalent to a baseball player entering a batter's box with two strikes already against him. The court went on in this case to determine that because the factors in Graham are not applicable in medical cases, it is necessary to identify a different set of factors for evaluating an officer's actions in non-criminal cases. And so as we wrap up this first duty of care podcast, I'm going to share with you the Hill test. in in, this should be part of your policy in dealing with non-criminal subjects or using force against non-criminal subjects. The Hill court said that when evaluating whether an officer's use of force is excessive against a non-criminal suspect, we're going to ask three questions. Question number one. Was the person experiencing a medical emergency that rendered him incapable of making a rational decision under circumstances that pose an immediate threat of serious harm to himself or others? Question number two, was some degree of force reasonably necessary to alleviate that immediate threat? And question number three, was the force used more than reasonably necessary under the circumstances, or was it excessive? So let's do a quick review of this and leave you with this thought process. Was the person experiencing a medical emergency rendered himself incapable of making a rational decision under circumstances that posed an immediate threat of serious harm to himself or others? And I think that's the key part of this test and goes right to our analysis today of suspect versus subject, incapacitation, and basically saying, is the individual suffering from something that they cannot make good decisions for themselves? And that's an area where we may have to use the force to provide them treatment when that treatment is the best option for them. And remember, the court is saying that, is is the force going to be necessary? I mean, did you need to do it? And is the force necessary under the circumstances? And I think really where this comes into play when we have that moral wrapping it all up with that moral versus legal duty is, you know, is there a difference between someone who's is having this breakdown for the first time that needs to be secured and needs to be taken for treatment or what happens in the question I'll leave you to think about is what happens when this is an individual who we deal with often, who has received treatment often who the hospital is let out of the hospital often. And what more can we do for this person? And and that's really where the clear challenge is going to start coming to us. Be clear, uh, all of you have state law that in some form require you to take action against individuals who are a threat to themselves or others. and allows you the legal ability to take that individual into custody and to present them to a treatment facility. The problem is that while we have that law, the treatments facilities in and of themselves, there's not as many of them. They don't do as good of a job as they used to do. And then they're more likely to return this guy or gal back to the street in a very short period of time. I, I only say that by experience here in the state of Connecticut where we have a 72-hour hold our hold, but It's very normal that an individual is out of the hospital in six hours back on the street. Well, and then back in crisis again. And the question is, what are we supposed to do here? If we continue to interact with this individual, the force will escalate. That escalation could lead to the need to use a significant level of force and maybe even a deadly force based on the circumstances that the subject is placed in. And that's where our challenge uh, really expands. We're dealing with topics that are hot. When we come back and, and on the next podcast, we're going to talk about what we call the public duty doctrine and really get you some more information on this topic so that you can start to understand this because we need to be educated on this. We need to understand how this mental health application fits into all of the state law reform legislation that we got and how it can be used against us in law enforcement as a negligence claim. in, in really the, the the factor that we're looking at is a breach of the duty of care. So what is a duty of care, legal versus moral? All right, that was a lot and I threw a lot at you. I again want to reiterate that you should check out the article on this topic And feel free, make sure you download the app and get our legal updates and pay attention to our Path the Guardian training and our supervisory online training. If your department does not purchase it, you can purchase it yourself as an individual through both the uh, app and the Learning Center. So until next time, please help those who need your help, protect those who need your protection, and most importantly, keep yourself and others safe. Thank you. The Guardian Mindset Podcast is sponsored by the DLG Learning Center. You can find us at www.dlglearningcenter.com. On the Learning Center, you can find an extensive library of articles, webinars, and online training. Listen, if you find the podcast informative, I'd recommend checking out our weekly Path of the Guardian video training and our monthly supervisory continued education program. These programs can be purchased by single users or department-wide. And if you want easy access to articles and information, please download the Daigle Law Group app through either your Apple App Store or your Google App Store. And remember, help those who need your help, protect those who need your protection, and most importantly, keep yourself and others safe. Thank you.